All right, friends, today I am not going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians. This morning, we're going to take a break from our normal sermon series. Normally, we preach exegetically through whole books of the Bible. But, but back in May, I spoke at a Life Together conference on the topic of gospel joy. And some of you were at that conference, and you heard that message and shared with us that we should have that message be given on a Sunday morning here at Redeemer Fellowship. Uh, and we agree with that, not because we think that Redeemer Fellowship is not a joyful church. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. Redeemer Fellowship, you are one of the most joyful churches I have ever been a part of. When people visit our church, one of the most regular bits of feedback that they give is that the people are so happy, they're so joyful together. And I truly do thank God for that in our midst. It's an evidence of our love for Jesus and our love for each other. But it is good not to take it for granted. Joy can be easily lost. And so we want to consider together how to cultivate even more joy together as a local church family. And in order to do this this morning, I am not going to have you turn to James chapter 1, where it says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. I'm not going to have you turn to Philippians chapter 4, where it says, rejoice in the Lord always. No, today we're going to look at a much lesser known text on joy, and it is 1 Kings chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Kings chapter 1 in the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 1. We don't have time to read the entire chapter together, but we're going to speak about much of it. But I'm going to, I'm going to jump around a little bit to get the main idea. 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 1. Now King David was old and advanced in years. Jump down to verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Jump down to verse 15. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old. Verse 16, Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king. And the king said, what do you desire? She said to him, my lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Jump down to verse 20. She says, and now, my lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Jump down to verse 29. And the king swore, saying, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, even so will I do this day. Jump down to verse 33. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. Jump down to the middle of verse 39. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, listen, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. Verse 41, 
Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, what does this uproar in the city mean? And then they're told, verse 45, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him, Solomon, king at Gihon, and they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. My friends, collective joy is a very, very powerful thing. Collective joy. There's almost nothing like the experience of exuberant joy with a large group of people together. There is unity in that joy. There is solidarity and support and energy and excitement and anticipation in collective joy. Think about it with me. Think about even small things. Think about when you won that championship game with your teammates in high school and the, the celebration that followed. Think about your favorite professional sporting event, like when the Eagles won the Super Bowl and the celebration that followed. Or think about other things that we like to geek out over. I've never been to one, but I have heard that a comic book convention is a very powerful thing to experience because there are thousands of enthusiasts enjoying the same thing together. And all of those examples are trite examples. Think about bigger moments of collective joy. Think about V-Day, when World War II came to an end. There was apparently a celebration in New York City that lasted two whole days, and there was apparently a victory roar that went up that lasted for 20 minutes after the announcement of victory was made. The joy just could not be contained. Or think about the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863 the day that countless men and women throughout America had been waiting and longing for, the moment that would declare black men and women free from slavery and bondage. Frederick Douglass said of that day, the scene was wild and grand. Joy and gladness exhausted all forms of expression from shouts of praise to joys and tears. Collective joy. It's a powerful experience. But friends, collective joy doesn't just happen naturally or easily, does it? No, collective joy happens only after we have waited and longed for something bigger than ourselves to happen. The sports team has worked hard to get where they are. The world suffered together through years in World War II. Millions of men and women endured centuries of slavery and oppression before given freedom. Collective joy comes when a group of people experience a long-awaited event together. And friends, the same can be seen in our text here today. As we'll see in just a moment, this is a very, very dramatic chapter in our Bibles. The question at hand in this text is who will be king? There were enemy kings. Corporate joy almost didn't happen because a false king, a fake king, almost ruled over the nation of Israel. But corporate joy did happen because God met them in their need and God put his rightful king on the throne. 
And friends, what we're going to see together today is that God has done the same for us. And therefore, we too, as a local church, can explode with joy. Not not necessarily just the, the loud and expressive joy that we might think of when we hear that word, but certainly the, the confident and, and faith-filled joy of trusting God in every circumstance of life. Why? Because the right king is on the throne. The main idea for our sermon this morning is this. Having Jesus as king leads to great and contagious joy among his people. Having Jesus as king leads to great and contagious joy among his people. We have three points. Point number one, he is our joyful king. Number two, we are his joyful people. And point number three, they will hear our joyful message. Let's begin with the first point. Point number one, he is our joyful king. We do not have time to read all of this chapter together, but but this chapter is a very, very dramatic chapter in our Bibles and in the history of God's people. King David, the greatest king that Israel ever knew, a man after God's own heart, is old and advanced in years, according to verse one. King David is about to die. And as he's about to die, the pressing issue, the pressing question is, who will reign as king in his place? And while that might seem like that should be a simple question, it's actually very complicated. And it's complicated because neither Solomon nor Adonijah, as we see in this text, are David's eldest sons. There's already been a lot of corruption and sin in David's house, a lot of sin and pride. And so who would be king was not very clear. God God had told David that it was going to be Solomon, but but in verses 5 to 10 here, we see Adonijah, another of David's sons, fight for the crown. He, He goes against God's word, and he calls political leaders together in secret. He's trying to start a coup. He wants to lead a mutiny of sorts. He wants to depose King David and assume the kingship himself. And friends, Adonijah is not the only person with a scheming plan here. Now in verses 11 to 27, we see Bathsheba, who is wife to King David and mother to Solomon. Bathsheba, along with the prophet Nathan, create their own plan. They don't want to tell the king what to do, but they do want to make sure that David is aware of Adonijah's evil ways, and they want to make sure that David anoints Solomon as king, as God had said. Folks, there are power moves all over the place in this text. Who is going to be king? Who is going to be king? And friends, that dramatic question of who will be king, it's not a new question for Israel. It's not new at all. In fact, this question had been asked since the very first pages of our Bibles. I wish that we had time this morning to do an an entire biblical theology of God's kingship. But listen, it can be said that the question of who will be king over our lives, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. God created the world, and he wanted to lovingly rule over this world and over his people. But as you know, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve take matters into their own hands and they fight to be king. They fight to rule over their own lives. And that begins the long question of who will reign in our lives. 
You can see this question being asked throughout the book of Genesis and throughout the book of Exodus as as God demonstrates his his power over other nations and over kings and over Egypt in particular. He's trying to convince his people that there is no king that can rule their lives as well as he can. But the people of Israel regularly, consistently look for other kings, don't they? The book of Judges in the Old Testament is a graphic picture of what it looks like to refuse God as the right king and for everyone to do what was right in their own eyes and to rule their lives as they wanted. It's terrible. The lack of God's kingly rule in their lives led to chaos and brokenness of the worst kinds in Israel. Ultimately, In 1 Samuel chapter 8, it says that the people, broken by their own sin, come to Samuel and they say to him, he's he's the final judge, they say to him, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They they wanted a king like all the the other nations. They they didn't want God to be only a king by faith. They wanted a human king that they could see with their own eyes. And God obliges their weakness of faith and he gives them an earthly king to rule over their lives. And so Saul is chosen to be king and we know how that turned out. Saul was not a man after God's own heart and God removed him as king. The search for God's ultimate king over the lives of his people just continues. Eventually David would be anointed king. He was a man after God's own heart. He was an imperfect man, a sinful man, but a man who did rule with wisdom and strength. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read God's words to David about the Davidic covenant. God speaks to King David and he says, David, I promise you, your kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. Your reign will last forever and ever. But how? How will David's reign last forever? He's just a man. And as we see in 1 Kings chapter 1, he is old and advanced in years. His rule is a limited rule. He's going to die. And so listen, it is with all of this history and more that we come to 1 Kings chapter 1 and we see that this is indeed a very, very dramatic chapter. Who will be king? Has God's promises failed? Will the son of David that God chose, Solomon, will he be king or will an imposter, a false king, rule in his place? This is the drama of the text that is in front of us. And church, this is so relevant because this is the drama of our own lives. The question of this text is the question that we fight with every single day of our existence. Who will reign our lives as king? Friend, let me ask you that question this morning. Who is king over your life? Is it God's rightful king or are you king? Is it God's rightful king or is your job king over your life? Is money king over your life? Is your reputation king over your life? Is there a substance that is king over your life? Is sexual exploits king over your life? Are politics king over your life? Are sports or recreation king over your life? Is your GPA or your future college career king over your life? Is having a clean and orderly home and family king over your life? Who is king? 
teenagers, let me, let me ask you the question very directly. Who or what is king number one in your life, teenagers? And don't give me the Sunday school response of Jesus. No, truly, who is king over your life? Do you worship and obey your popularity, your grades, your boyfriend or girlfriend? Is it the music or the video games that you enjoy? Whether we are young or old, we must learn. We must learn from the story of Scripture that the search for a king to rule in our lives, listen, it will always turn out poorly if that king is not God's chosen king. Our desire to rule our own lives or to have lesser kings rule our lives, it will always lead to destruction, church. And that's what we see in this text. Adonijah is a bad king. He is unwise and ungodly, and his reign will ruin the lives of God's people. Friends, listen, there are many Adonijahs in our life as well. Many things that claim authority and power in your world. Many things that promise you a happy kingdom, but that will leave you broken and disappointed in the gutter. All of our Adonijahs, all of our false kings that we worship, they have not worked and they will not work. Redeemer, we must see, we must believe that any other king than God's rightful king is the wrong king for our lives. God knows this. He knows it for his people. And in his great love, God wants his rightful king on the throne of our lives. And so even in our text, God takes action through King David, even in his old age. Look at verse 29. It says, and the king swore, saying, as the Lord lives, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. God takes action for his people through King David. Even in his old age, King David directs everyone on what to do. He says, take my son, Solomon, put him on a donkey, which is a sign of royalty. Take him to Gihon, which is the place where they anointed kings. There, anoint him as king and declare, long live King Solomon. Folks, listen, Solomon doesn't do anything in this text. He's like on for the ride. He's like being pulled along and then the crown is put on him. All of this is supposed to show us how committed God himself is to have his rightful king upon the throne of our lives. His good plan for your life cannot be stopped by the false kings and false gods that you try to worship. No, God's rightful king will rule over you. He will work on your heart. He is working on your heart to make his son first. And so how amazing, how amazing that when we get to the New Testament, this is exactly what we see in Jesus. The prophecies of old come to pass. Jesus God the Son, he, he enters into this world, and as we see in, in Matthew chapter 1, he is a descendant of King David. And so God was faithful to his covenant, the Davidic covenant. And we know that Jesus was the long way to king because when he came, he declares, the kingdom is at hand. Jesus Christ comes and he says, the kingdom has arrived. I am the king, and I am the kingdom. And friends, this is not just any rule. It is the ultimate rule. And it is a happy and joyful rule. Jesus says throughout the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, blessed 
or happy or joyful are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This king and his kingdom, they bring blessedness. They bring joy to God's people. Think about the joy of Palm Sunday, right before Easter, when the people put Jesus on a donkey. They celebrate. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. On Palm Sunday, they are exploding with joy because they saw the rightful king of God has been sent. And friends, it was right that they explode with joy. Why? Because he is our joyful king. Jesus did not come begrudgingly. Jesus did not come complaining about what he needed to do. No, he came joyfully and eagerly. He came eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. He made wine at the wedding feast as a sign not of judgment, but of blessing and joy. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Church, hear that. It is God's good pleasure. It is Jesus' good pleasure. It is his joy to give us the kingdom, even when it meant dying in our place. Hebrews chapter 12 says that we should run the race that is set before us, looking to this joyful king, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured this cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is our joyful king. Amen. He's so committed to being our rightful king and to living with us in his kingdom that he joyfully did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How amazing. How amazing that even while we were his enemies, God said no to all of the Adonijahs in our lives, and he said yes to his son, to King Jesus. How amazing, how glorious. In the midst of our brokenness, he came to us. How happy and joyful a thing that the King of kings and the Lord of lords entered into our messy world. This is what we celebrate together as Christians and as a local church. We, we have a king, and he's a good king. He's a joyful king, and he is the king that invites us into perfect joy and perfect blessing with him. Friends, before I move on to point number two, let me say this. If you have never bent your knee to this king, if you are not a Christian here this morning, and if you are living for your own kingdom. God is talking to you right now through this message. He is lovingly, directly addressing you, and he is inviting you to make Jesus your king. And you will not be disappointed. Your life will be transformed for the better. It will be an experience like nothing else. There will be joyful confidence like you have never known before because the right king will be on the throne and he is a joyful and gracious and loving king. Friends, that brings us to our second point. Point number two, we are his joyful people. What is the loudest celebration that you have ever been a part of? Was it when you went to that Taylor Swift concert? Was it when the Eagles won the, I almost said the, the World Series, the Super Bowl? 
Maybe it's a, a conference that you went to. I'll, I'll never forget when I was in Brazil on a missions trip, and I was surrounded by hundreds of Brazilian people when the nation of Brazil won the World Cup. Oh, they love soccer down there. It's king of their lives. And the celebration that followed was unlike anything I've ever experienced. It went on for hours. It was loud. It was a physical celebration. There was singing and dancing, even crying and hugging. Even though it was just a soccer game, it was a powerful experience. Celebrating victory is a, a joyful thing, and that is what we are called to as Christians. Now, friends, I want and I need to say that sometimes when we start talking about joy among God's people, people can wrongly assume that we're trying to say that everyone in the church needs to have a happy-go-lucky energy about them, that if we're not like those people who are naturally outgoing and optimistic and don't easily respond to things, that we're not being faithful. But listen, that's not what we're being called to. That would be empty joy. True joy is joy that celebrates victory even as we feel the pain and sorrow of defeat and of difficulties in this world. Everyone celebrating V-Day in New York City was still aware of the millions of deaths that had happened. The Emancipation Proclamation was so powerful because it was in contrast to that which had been so bad for so long. And friends, even in our text today, even though it says they rejoice with great joy, it's very clear that they are still aware that Adonijah and his rebels are still out there. The enemy still exists. And so listen, biblical joy is not blind optimism. No, biblical joy is not blind optimism, but rather a grounded confidence in God and in his anointed king. But biblical joy is, is grounded confidence that, that though sin and pain remain, our king is on his throne and his sovereign will will be accomplished. Biblical joy is allowing the confidence of what will be instill hope and purpose and yes, even happiness and joy in our present. But it's real joy. And that's what we see in this text. Even though Adonijah is still out there, even though more trials are certainly to come against the nation of Israel, in this moment, church, they are overwhelmed with joy by the reminder that God is faithful to his word. And this is so key to see together. I, I don't think that they celebrate as loudly as they do because Solomon was king. No, they didn't even know what kind of king Solomon was going to be. So they weren't celebrating their immediate circumstances Rather, they were celebrating the God who had been faithful through their circumstances. God had been faithful to his word to put his chosen king on the throne, so that gave them confidence that he would be faithful into the future no matter what might come. And friends, church, this is true for us as well. Having Jesus as king does not mean that all of our problems go away. But it does mean that God has been and will be perfectly faithful to his word. The gospel that we celebrate, the life and death and resurrection and ascension and enthronement of King Jesus, it means that all will be well in our lives. Even when all does not feel well, Hebrews says that all of our enemies are still like a footstool for the feet of King Jesus. The gospel says that though we still suffer, King Jesus has had and is having the victory. This is why James can say in James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
We're able to have joy, not in the absence of trial, but in the midst of trial, because King Jesus is going to use even those trials for our good. Maybe you are someone who wrestles with doubt, and you struggle for faith on a daily basis. And oftentimes, your your doubt and your wrestling, it steals your joy from Christ. But listen, having Jesus as king can give you joy despite your many doubts, because his Holy Spirit is your seal and your guarantee, and his spirit is able to remind you that Jesus left that empty grave behind, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, and all things, even your doubt, are a footstool to his feet. Church, having Jesus as king means that your worst trials and your deepest doubts are not the end of the story in your life. Amen? Friends, that should make us celebrate. This should make us very, very happy. Look look at what it says in verse 39. It It says, they blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. (laughs) What a verse. I read it like five times when I first saw it. I had to make sure I understood what it was saying. They rejoiced with great joy so that the earth was split by the noise. Their joy was so explosive that it almost felt like the earth was having an earthquake. Friends, this is the joy that comes from having God's rightful king over our lives. And friends, it doesn't always look the same. At times, it should look like singing and shouting and dancing and stomping our feet. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But listen, this this deafening and earth-shaking joy, it can also be heard in the darkness of the hospital room with a mom or dad praying over their son or daughter with cancer. This this deafening and earth-shaking joy can be heard in the lives of those who deal with chronic pain, people who deal with physical suffering on on a daily basis, but who keep looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of their faith. This this deafening and earth-shaking joy that splits open the earth, it's not just heard in the person singing loudly, it's also heard in the lonely spouse whispering prayers of faith to their God. Or to the young mom or dad who quietly gets up in the morning to read their Bible despite having been woken up five times during the night. This deafening and earth-shaking joy, it's not just heard through through clapping and dancing, it's it's heard in the man or woman who fights same-sex attraction every day of their life and is seeking to honor King Jesus by living a pure life. These things are signs of explosive joy that can split open the earth. And friends, let me encourage you. God has so blessed us with this joy. He has blessed us with deep joy, not just shallow joy here at Redeemer Fellowship. I love the history that we are sharing together. I love the evidence of so many clinging to the promises of God, to the hope of the gospel, despite their horrific circumstances. Friends, let me encourage you. The gospel is functioning in your lives as God intends. It is sustaining you and strengthening you day by day. But friends, let me also say, joy in the face of suffering is not the only way that we are called to express our joy. It's more than that. And this is something that I am so thankful for here at Redeemer Fellowship, but it's also something that I think we need to give attention to and to not allow to be lost and that we could even grow in. Our joy 
should also be seen and heard in our expressive worship on Sunday mornings. Here's the reality. The sorrows and the pains of, of Monday through Saturday threaten to steal our joy each and every week. They, they threaten to rob our confidence in our king. And so we need, we need desperately to come together on Sunday mornings to remind ourselves and each other of the reasons that we have to be truly joyful and to keep going. And we need to call ourselves to, to physically respond. Oftentimes our, our souls follow our bodies in this. In this text, the threats and the dangers were not gone, but they still shouted and danced and stomped. They still blew the trumpets in celebration. And I wish we had time to do a full biblical theology of expressiveness in worship this morning. We don't have time for that. Drew's going to come next week and preach to us about using our bodies in worship. Because that's what we see in this text. And friends, that's what we see throughout all of God's word. Verse 40 says that they rejoiced with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. Joy does not have to be loud, but joy should at times be very loud. It says that Adonijah heard it from far away as an uproar coming from the city. That, that means, listen, that means that when Solomon was anointed king and all the people were gathered around, and Nathan the prophet is, is anointing him as king, and then they say, okay, now's the time. It means that the people weren't standing there with their hands in their pockets or scrolling on their phones <laughs> Oh, oh, now's the time? Oh, good. Long live King Solomon. Oh, oh, sorry, I missed it. Long live, long king, long live King Solomon. No, no, they shouted, long live the king and his throne. It means that they let the truth and the joy of those words lead them to respond with their voices and with their bodies. There were pipes and drums. It reminds me of when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back into Israel. The Ark was the sign of God's presence. And it was, at, it was lost for a time and then brought back to Israel. And it says that King David himself danced. It says that he lost his dignity by dancing out of his clothes. I don't even know what that means, but it's, it's serious. He was so overcome with joy in God that it led him to respond physically before the Lord. The scriptures say, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. It doesn't matter whether you sing well or not. They've left my mic on several times. You know that I don't sing very well, but that shouldn't stop us. In Exodus chapter 15, after the exodus through the Red Sea, it says that Miriam took a tambourine in her hand and that she and the women of Israel danced and sang before the Lord with thanksgiving. Psalm 47 verse 5, God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. The scriptures say, lift your hands before him. The scriptures say, clap your hands before the Lord. Redeemer Fellowship, can I talk about our clapping for a minute? <laughs> Listen. There are so many things that God is doing in our midst. God has been so faithful. He's giving so many gifts. He has not yet given us the gift of clapping. <laughs> it's, it's ugly, I'm telling you. Part of it is probably because I'm partly leading the way and I have the worst rhythm in the world, but we are called to clap. And I'm not even saying like during the song, most of us don't even have rhythm enough to do that, but I'm saying in response to truth that we hear. At moments in the song, we should applaud. At moments in the preaching, we should applaud. Why? Because God says, 
Express yourself before me and make your praise known with your bodies. I remember, I remember Easter morning this past Sunday or this past year, Scott Rudy was back here on the base and he started jumping up and down. Do you remember? His head hit the screen and the whole thing shook. That's awkward, but it doesn't matter. The joy of the Lord is our strength and so we must respond. Redeemer Fellowship, listen, Adonijah could have been king. Your sin could have been your king. Your pride could have been your king. Alcohol and drugs could have been your king. Sexual immorality could have been your king, but they're not. Why? Because God has set his powerful, loving, beautiful, joyful king on his rightful throne in your life. And so we are free. We're free from that bondage. We are redeemed from that slavery. And so he, even as Frederick Douglass says of the joy that was experienced during the Emancipation Proclamation, Friends, the scene at church on Sunday morning should be very similar. He says, the scene was wild and grand. Joy and gladness exhausted all forms of expression from shouts of praise to joys and tears. We are called to be his joyful people. Can I exhort you to begin to express your joy in Christ even more? Whether through the deafening joy of enduring trial whether through loud shouts of praise on Sunday morning, we are called to respond to King Jesus with joyful confidence in him. Friends, not, let's not lose this as a church. Let's actually cultivate much, much more of it together. And as we do, Jesus will be glorified and his name is going to become more famous throughout this world. And that brings us to our third point. Point number three, they will hear our joyful message. If, if you know me at all, you know that I can be kind of loud, as evidenced over the last 35 minutes. I, I laugh loud, I talk loud, I'm not a very quiet person, but listen, <laughs> I am not nearly as loud by myself as when you put me with my dad and my four brothers in front of a Red Sox game. That is a whole different level, come on, Jared, that's a whole different level of loud, and you would have been scared if you had been at our house in 2004 when the Red Sox won the World Series. 86 years of the curse of the Bambino. 86 years without a World Series until 2004. In 2004, we came back to beat the evil Yankees in the American League Championship, and then we went on to break the curse by winning the World Series. Guys, it was unbelievable. I cannot tell you how loud we were. Our house exploded. The, the collective joy just erupted. It was, it was deafening. In fact, it was probably five years afterwards that we met a family who lived in the neighborhood far across from ours. They lived maybe almost a mile away. And when we met them, somehow the Red Sox got brought up and they were like, wait a minute. Were you that family that we heard on that night? Like, yeah, that was probably us. They're like, it was so loud. We wanted to get in on the party with you. Folks, that's exactly like what we have in this text, only even more so. In this text, Adonijah and his friends, they are perfectly content, perfectly happy in themselves. 
They think that they are secure. They think that their king is going to rule on the throne. They are feasting the night away in celebration because they think that their kingdom is the ultimate kingdom. Folks, listen, there are people all around us every day who are feasting their lives away. They think that their lives are secure. They think that they have found true happiness in their career or in their home or in their hobby or in their drugs. People all around us in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces think that they are living in the ultimate kingdom. Kingdom. But look at what happens to Adonijah and his friends. In verses 41 to 53, over and above the sound of his own loud party, Adonijah hears this roar of joy coming from the city. And he and Joab say, what in the world is that noise? What is happening over there? And then they are told, oh, that's because Solomon is sitting on the throne. The city is in an uproar of rejoicing. And Adonijah's party stops. Just this past Friday, I was at a wedding, and the dancing got started, and the DJ was pretty good, actually, and, and they're jumping around and enjoying the time. And then somebody tripped over the cord and unplugged the music. Boom, done. That's like what happens to Adonijah here. Suddenly, his, his party's gutted. There's no more enthusiasm. Look at verse 49. All the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. Adonijah and all his guests began to fear the king because of the joy that they heard coming from the city. They all scattered from their place of celebration. Why? Because they suddenly realized that they did not have anything to truly celebrate. They realized as much as they wished that he was king, as much as they wanted to act like he was a good king, they realized that Adonijah was no king at all. He was a fraud. It says that they trembled and each went his own way. Oh, Redeemer Fellowship, this is the effect that our joy in King Jesus can and will have on our world around us as well. They will see your joy as you don't give up in the midst of trial. They will see and hear your joy as cars line up outside your house for fellowship group. They will see and hear your joy as you give generously and serve radically within the church. They're going to see all of these things in your life which will seem like weakness at first to them, but they're going to see it and they're going to see the joy that accompanies it and they are going to consider what is happening in their lives, what is happening in that place, and they're going to begin to tremble. Your joy in trial, your joy within the local church is going to expose the false kingdoms, and it's going to be an opportunity for many to turn to the true king. It says that Adonijah knew that his mutiny was over. He went into the tabernacle and clung to the altar. He was claiming asylum. He was terrified trying his best to protect himself. He knew, he knew the show was up. But it also says that Solomon called for him and they brought Adonijah to him. And at least at this point in the story, Solomon ultimately has mercy upon him. The joy of God's people was used by God to inform Adonijah and his rebels that they did not have all that they thought that they had. The joy of Israel exposed their counterfeit kingdom and it led them to the ultimate kingdom. And my friends, this will be our experience as well. Our joy in our King, our glorious Savior Jesus, it will be contagious. People will notice it and they will ask with Adonijah, what is the sound that we are hearing? And may it be that our joy is what draws them to find mercy before the King. He is our joyful King. We 
are his joyful people. They will hear our joyful message. Collective joy is a very powerful thing, and there is no greater joy than God's people rejoicing in the great things that he has done. Amen. Would you please stand with me as I pray?